Tucked away in a corner of one of London's parks is a place of conflict. I've been there a couple of times, the second one being about ten years ago. Uh, Depending on how you're feeling when you visit, this small parcel of greenery in the centre of London's West End is either a beacon of democracy, a symbol of the right to free speech, an ancient acre of liberty that proclaims the dignity of human beings, or it is a place of anger, divisiveness and cruelty. It's called Speaker's Corner. Now, as you know from your high school history lessons, uh, in the UK there is no constitutional right to free speech because there is, you know, no real constitution. But for hundreds of years, people have shown up at Speaker's Corner carrying their soapboxes and their megaphones to shout whatever is burning in their hearts. If you like this sort of thing, it's great fun. But be warned, you need a thick skin if you are going to visit Speaker's Corner. Now, if you think that this free place of yelling whatever is on your mind would attract, shall we say, alternative thinkers and unusual characters, uh, you'd be totally right. But among the eccentrics and the jokers, there are always some reasonable and sincere speakers. Some Christian, some Muslim, some Marxist, some, well, it's difficult to work out what they are. Most speakers, though, are pretty dogmatic. I mean, you've got to be... Uh, got to have courage of your convictions if you're going to stand on a set of stepladders and bellow to one of the world's great cities what you think. As you'd expect, no one gets an easy ride from the audience. Now, I'm sorry to say that the last time I was there, the worst examples of arrogance were the Christians. I was really rather embarrassed. Uh, There was one preacher in particular... He caught my eye and ear, and purely because I was looking for good sermon material, I thought I would debate him. But it was clear that he had no respect for anyone who disagreed with him. So before I'd even really said anything, he proclaimed that I was speaking the words of Satan. And I thought, who told you? (laughs) Is it that obvious? My cover was blown, and I replied, with respect, sir, we've never met, and you can't judge a person like that. And he replied that God had given him a supernatural ability to identify followers of the devil. And like the bad guy in the Scooby-Doo cartoons, I thought I'd gotten away with it. I wondered where Jesus would be that Sunday afternoon if he landed at Heathrow and took the tube into the city. I suspect he would not be at Speaker's Corner preaching to a crowd. I reckon he'd be in another part of town, maybe a seedier, needier part, spending time with people who know their lives are broken and who are desperate for the love of God. He would be looking for the lost, not debating with the self-righteous. But when it comes to John the Baptist, I'm not so sure. I suspect he'd have been at Speaker's Corner. 
The John the Baptist we read about in the Gospel would have been the first one there, not just with his soapbox, but with his portable sound system too. And if I were in that crowd, maybe I'd dismiss him as one of those embarrassing Christians. Maybe I'd cringe as I thought to myself, John, look mate, you're doing our cause no favours here. Talk about God's love. Stop condemning people's behaviour. Don't spout judgment. Show them God's grace. Then they'll maybe listen to you. Oh, and while you're at it, mate, get a haircut. Look, that's Oxford Street over there. Go and get some nice clothes. Lose the camel hair. It is so 1970s. And stop eating locusts. Burgers, not bugs. How do you hope to win any converts looking and preaching like that? You brood of vipers, he thunders to the self-righteous. Who wants you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And don't begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not bear fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. God sent John on a mission to get things smooth and level and flat for the Messiah. And for that to happen, John had to tap down the bumps of people's greed, demolish the hills of corruption and bulldoze their egos. His task was to call people to change, to point out their moral failings and beckon them to a better life. Because if people's souls are full of potholes and rocks and twists and turns and hills and debris, they won't notice the saviour when he comes. The mountains and sinkholes will hide their rescuer. If you think you don't need saving, then you're not going to respond to a saviour. In a nutshell, John's message was this, repent and bear the fruit of repentance. Because we can all say sorry, can't we? But John makes it a bit tougher than that. True repentance is more than an apology. It involves changing the way we live. Repentance is not actually about the past, what we have done, but about the future, how we will live. We may fail again in the same way, maybe hundreds of times, but we need to have that intention to live right from now on. That's what John means by the fruit of repentance. The fruit of repentance is a changed life. Twelve-step programs call it making amends, not just being sorry for how you've hurt someone, but doing something about it. In the Oscar-winning film, The Mission, there's a vivid and inspiring picture of a man who repents and bears the fruit of that repentance. The film is about a Spanish slave trader in the 18th century, Mendoza, played by Robert De Niro, who has no regard for human beings and no respect for God. He hits rock bottom when he kills his own brother in a duel over a lover. But as he retreats into isolation, Gabriel, a Jesuit priest, visits him, and Mendoza confesses his life of sin. 
And Gabriel sets him a task as a sign that his repentance is genuine. He takes him to the Amazon rainforest where there is a Jesuit mission high in the jungle above a waterfall. Gabriel instructs Mendoza to gather together the symbols of his sins, his cr the crimes, the cruelty, the violence, and place them in a sack and carry them up the mountain high above the falls. This is not Santa's sack. Far from it. Mendoza's is loaded with maybe 200 pounds of the tools of empire, the hardware of brutality, swords, armour, pistols, gold. And with this burden on his back, he climbs. It is a great moment in the history of cinema. But here's the tr truly moving thing. He doesn't climb alone. Next to him, sharing every foothold, feeling every splash of water that cascades from the mountain, labours Gabriel. The priest never speaks to the prodigal. He never lends a hand. Not once does he even reach out to grab him when the load gets too much and Mendoza loses his footing. He just climbs quietly next to him, knowing that Mendoza alone must take responsibility for the weight of sin in his soul and the weight of the baggage on his back, for only that is true repentance. Finally, exhausted beyond imagining, Mendoza reaches the top of the waterfall where he's met by members of the tribe he has subjugated and exploited. They are now Christians and members of the mission. And Mendoza frees himself from the symbols of empire on his back and hurls them into the waterfall. And as the trophies of his power, ego and depravity crash into the pool below, the broken sinner is made whole and begins a new life of service to the people he has so grievously harmed. Let's leave the waterfall and return to the desert, where John gets specific. He says to the crowds, whoever has two coats must share with anyone who has none, and whoever has food must do likewise. To tax collectors, he says, collect no more than the amount prescribed for you. To soldiers, he commands, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation, and be satisfied with your wages. To regular folks, share your stuff. Compassion for the poor. To people who handle money, don't commit fraud. Be honest. And to those with power, don't be corrupt. Be satisfied with what you have. When you think about it, this is not a high bar. On my very best days, I can possibly make it through without committing fraud, using my power corruptly, or greedily hoarding all my belongings. Well, actually, maybe not. But you get my point. Uh, compare it with Jesus' command to love God with all you've got and love your neighbour as yourself. Uh, John's instructions are almost achievable. Have compassion, show integrity, and be content. In the New Testament, there are three kinds of moral teaching. There's the idealistic kind, 
Jesus says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Love your enemies and do not resist the evildoer. Forgive as you have been forgiven. Challenges that inspire us and motivate us to live right, but they are ideals. All we can do is aim at them. We'll never truly achieve them. Then there are cryptic commands. Jesus says, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. He sets us a puzzle. We have to figure out what this actually looks like in real life. And then there are those down-to-earth instructions, like John's today. Share your stuff. Don't fiddle the books. Don't be a bully. Don't be greedy. You know where you stand with John. You grow the fruit of, of repentance. You don't merely confess. You change. You make a new start. You do a U-turn. But in every other way, you stay where you are. Jesus calls people to follow him. To fishermen, leave your boats. To a tax collector, leave your office. But John's strategy is very different. People go out to find him and he tells them to shape up and live right and then sends them back to their old lives. Go home and do what you've been doing, but do it better more ethically, more lovingly. Be a better person while you're doing it. Compassion, integrity, contentment. Compassion, integrity, contentment. It doesn't matter how many times you say it, it always sounds beautiful. As we approach Christmas, let's get our hearts ready for Christ. Let's do what we always do, but do it with compassion integrity and contentment and let's bear the fruits of repentance. Amen.